because you're jumping back into the gap. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome Stefan Weisenberg to the Basketball Podcast. Stefan Weisenberg has been doing player development for Bros Bamberg since 2008. With Bamberg Club, Stefan has been part of seven German League and five German Cup championships. From 2018 to 20, he worked for the Brooklyn Nets, visiting them once a month with special tasks, mostly on shooting. Stefan has worked with EuroLeague, NBA, and youth players from all over the world, including NBA players Maxi Kleberg, PJ Tucker, Jacob Portal, and Daniel Theus. Stefan, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to talk to you and uh, so many places we can go. I wanted to start with something that I got from one of your previous podcasts, and that was that you broke basically development down into the work, the trust, the patience. Can you talk to us a little bit about how those three things intersect? Well, first, the work, we we have to do something, right? If you want to change, if you want to improve, and we have to do something. So there has to be work uh, at some point. <laughs> we can't just talk about it. We have to do something. The trust is or might be a point that we forget sometimes. How is our connection to the player? How do we see him? Do we really believe in what we teach? Have we just talked to somebody else and said, yeah, man, that, that player is never going to get it. And then we go into a workout. Do we really trust that work? Do we trust the the improvement that we're looking for? And the other way around, does he does he trust me or does he feel it anyway that I'm maybe not really believing in him anymore, maybe? Or do I does he really believe, wow, that that guy, that guy thinks I'm good. And I'm gonna listen to it. And he knows what he's talking about. So that's the trust, the trust aspect. And the third yeah the patience it's not going to come quickly sometimes it does but uh most of the times not or sometimes it comes quickly and then it goes away again the improvement or the goal or what whatever we we've been working on without that patience without that mm, perseverance of putting in the work again and again not not only for for days or weeks but for months and years and 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 the whole career. I think there's so many out there who proved that that the patience is such an important factor. And these three things are are important. I think they are simple enough. I like the number of three. I stole that from Gordy Herbert from your from your home country. He he he's big on never more than three things. And and these are three things that I definitely believe in. I love it. And, uh, you know, since 2008, you've been with Bamberg. And so you've been through different staffs, you've been through different situations. So I'm a little bit curious, first of all, give us an impression of kind of what is your role on a daily basis within the team? And specifically, there is there a distinction between being an assistant coach and being a player development coach? My, my role over the years has has changed and it, it actually changes with with every head coach. Like every every head coach has a has a different uh, philosophy, a different approach to 
individual development? Is there a, a difference? To be honest, the title is the big difference, and uh, it, it, it sounds different, but when I started working for the pro team here under Chris Fleming, which was by far my most important time, my title was a normal assistant coach. But, of course, the big passion that I had for helping players get better or develop or add stuff to their bag how it's called i used to do them back then already and 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 uh, coach fleming brought me in mostly or mainly to do that but of course uh, we we played euroleague back then for what four or five years in a row with a staff of only three coaches like two assistants and the head coach so there was a lot else to do too uh, game prep a lot of a lot of film uh, pre-game post-game whatever which changed later and you talked about or you asked about the difference for me the difference came when i first got fired from from bamberg with with coach fleming and, and arne Holtman, and then hired again with the new staff of andrea trinchieri and then i became a play, became a player development coach only and the difference for me was that i had a lot more time a lot more energy of course to think only development think only individually for the player and it for me was a a game changer a game changer because i had so much more potential and capacity to really dive into that almost exclusively and i loved it and yeah, i think you also reference a little bit the difference in the relationship between an assistant coach and a player development coach for the player from their perspective especially coming back to that second piece you talked about the trust yes and i think it's a it, it, it can be a delicate thing every coach likes to be close to the players likes to be understood by the, by the players i think there's a very very thin line where we sometimes not because we we want to do bad things but we are sometimes I'm tempted to use it a little bit because we we enjoy it. We we enjoy the, the 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 trust of the player, but it must never go against the head coach. It must never go against the team tactics. It must never go against the team. For example, oh yeah, he's angry that he game or I didn't get the ball much, and, and then he comes talk to me if I'm assistant an assistant or a play development coach. That, that doesn't matter. But that trust thing in these situations is is very delicate because I think our our duty is to help the player in that situation in the system to function in the team instead of well if it will be my decision you will be play more <laughs> and we've all we've all heard it we've all been there um, so that the the trust thing must never be abused or misused is that the right word misused yeah because it can be a thin line and saying that i mean you're fully integrated as if you're obviously a member of the staff so you do have some input and you do have some say don't you oh yes oh yes yeah yeah so let's take a player who's not getting the ball much and he's not happy about it so what are we gonna do yeah i know that's bad for you and i would run plays for you or say good yeah Maybe hard for you, but you know what? If you run the break well, you're going to have one or two open shots more. And if we're going to work on them, uh, catch and shoot three out of a full sprint, I'm making that up now, but it's a, it can be a common situation. 
what if you get two shots more? And what if you make at least one more out of that? That is going to help you. And it's going to help the team too. It's a great great example of uh, a little bit of humility and accept, accepting your role, but also as you come back to and doing the work and saying this is how they're going to play you. So it's not as much, a, is it a physical change for him or was it a mindset change? Because both probably come into play. Um, I couldn't say. I, I, yeah. I don't know if it was 50-50 or, or, or 60-40. Uh, for sure both. For sure both. Because you feel misunderstood. And and many international or European players in the NBA, they they've had a past already. They maybe played for one of the top top European clubs. And in the NBA, nobody cares that much about it. They have to basically start new again. And that's not that's not easy. Some struggle with it because they have a choice, right? They find themselves on an NBA bench with very limited minutes, and they know, Phew, if I go back to a yearly club. They're going to love me. I'll be good there. I'll play. And uh, I might even even have a domestic passport, which makes me even more valuable. So <laughs> all these factors, they are in their heads. And then you have a guy who wants to dribble the ball, run pick and rolls, and, and connect people on the court. And he finds himself in the corner of, uh, uh, of an NBA team as a catch-and-shoot guy. Definitely also the physical part, like his, his physical ability to shoot the ball uh, was for sure his, his big weakness. We put in the work, definitely, and we trusted our plan. And uh, I wouldn't say we're, we're both very patient, patient people, but but uh, but it worked. It worked. Such a great example. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I just spent some time with the Denver Nuggets in season, and it, it it struck me that player development now is not this separate thing. It's this thing that they try as much to integrate into the pra- daily practice of the players. So pre-practice, post-practice, different groups of players had player development sessions. And the mindset being they only have to come to the office, the gym, one time during the day. And I'm just curious if that's something you've seen as kind of a change in player development over the years. Definitely, definitely. When uh, I shortly talked about my second staff on the on the Bamberg Club, which was led by head coach uh, uh, Trinchieri, the sports director, Baezi, who, who back then, they, they're both in Munich now. Uh, but uh, Mr. Vaisi sent me to the Spurs back then. And I didn't know why. Like, why should I go to San Antonio? The M- what, what, what should I do in the NBA if I'm here? And uh, it became, for sure, my most important basketball trip because I was so overwhelmed by the importance of player development in the NBA back then. Uh, we're talking about, what, 2016, 15, 16? I loved it. It it was it was I, I was like in heaven. <laughs> how many players how, how many players worked and how the structure functioned. Um I'm not a very well organized person, I'm afraid. Uh like when when it, it's hard for me to keep uh, uh keep everything organized. Who do I bring in when and for how long and, and when did I do what? And I learned it there, or I saw it there, and I tried to learn it from them how this machinery of of people coming in for pre-practice, you just mentioned it, how how this worked and how relatively easy it was and yeah, how easy it was for me to copy it, obviously in a smaller format, but I did copy it for our club. And we started bringing in guys before practice, working for 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Until then, I knew only, an well, individual practice has to be 45 to 60 minutes 
full energy, uh, an extra an extra session, maybe in the morning and then in the, in the afternoon you would have you would have a team a team session. So that's the format that I had known until then. But to bring in everybody just a little bit earlier, but maybe two times a week uh, or at least one time a week, sometimes three times a week. He doesn't have to come extra. It doesn't kill him from the load. And still, two or three, uh, three times 20 minutes is a full hour. And uh, that make, made so much sense. And I use that till now. And, and I love that format. It's my, it's my favorite, favorite format. Of course, we do individual or pre-tactical blocks in the team practices. Every head coach is a little different in this, but we do it now too. It has very high value. You can do a little bit more tactical, but the pre-practice, when the heads are fresh, when uh, when the body is fresh, when the gym is still half empty, and you can um, you can concentrate on things, you can talk a little bit and and connect before the practice, and then go into something that you have prepared. I love it. Connected with the fact that you that you just mentioned the one time per day, but it's a long a long unit of uh, basically covering almost everything that we need as athletes. It's a trend that that you see almost everywhere and. Obviously, it's a very functioning one. It also strikes me how it connects to a, a pregame warm-up, especially in the NBA. So I'm curious about at your level, your league level, if it's the same, that players get their little individual player development session prior to a game. It's different than the one prior to a practice. It's meant to obviously build comfort and confidence. But that type of idea, is that still does that exist in the EuroLeague as well? Well, definitely, you 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 see it everywhere. You see it everywhere, and and you see it more and more that uh, that teams are bringing bringing out their guys early. They they work individually and, and don't just run layup lines like, uh, like twenty years ago. Uh, th- that for sure. I remember, especially in when I used to work with the Nets, that you can really really take care of the guys who are gonna have uh, low minutes or no minutes at all, right? So you use that time before before the game to. To keep these guys in shape, to to keep working with with them, knowing that okay, we're on the on on a road trip uh, on the west coast, and player A, B, and C will not play, but we have we have the time before the game, and 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 use that time to work them out, or also in a way to to keep them in shape, right? Which is different, obviously, to to what you mentioned before, but also that that is a very important factor. Well, I love it because it really does help us account for individual differences, which we know is so important in coaching. And uh, you reference your reference your experience with the Brooklyn Nets, and I want to dive deeper into that because it's fascinating to me. You would go over there essentially once a month. So, talk to us about the process of these short periods of time to be able to impact change in players in terms of development. And I'm imagining from what you said, especially shooting, right? Yes, like. I think the whole the whole setup happened because that was the only thing possible. I visited the Nets. There was some talk. We we were both interested in working together, but I had a contract in Bamberg, a valid one for I don't know one or two more years. The Bamberg team said, "No, we won't let you go, but we let you go part time if that's of any interest." So we started to to think outside the box a little bit. So the let's say the the flexible and 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 modern thinking of of this collaboration uh, was okay. What if what if we try it this way? 
And uh, Kenny Atkinson was the head coach back then, super high on play development, super high on shooting. Uh, he knows basketball Europe too very well because he played and coached over here. Sean Marks was very creative in, in, in helping, helping that. Chris Fleming was there, and I had worked with him here in Hamburg. So, so the setup was, uh, was perfect. Obviously, it's delicate because you, <laughs> you don't have much time to come in and do something. So I always felt, okay, some, some players were, let's say, clear to be my candidates. So I, I, I had to concentrate on them more than others. But many things were more like, okay, let's, uh, let's figure it out. You know what, Stefan, figure it out. Find a way. Watch, observe a little bit, and try to figure it out. Sometimes I felt like I had to prepare for, it felt like windows. There's 10 windows, and I prepare for each of them to open. But then, obviously, only four or five would open during those four days of work because we planned this, but then it didn't happen because the guy got injured. Uh, maybe you can take this guy for 20 or 30 minutes, but then, you know, he was red uh, from, from his load, so it would be different. So it was, there, was, there were constant changes, and what I had planned would constantly change, too, when I was already there. So these, these, <laughs> these windows that I felt that I was waiting to open, they, they were there. I had to be ready to, as soon as one would open, to jump into the window or, or, or look into it and, and do my best for identifying the job in that moment. What does that guy need now? So, so it is fascinating. And I'm an outside-the-box thinker, too. So I love that. The, you know, you're finding a solution. They wanted to work with you. You wanted to work with them. You found a solution. Beautiful. So maybe just reflecting on that, what were the advantages of this setup that maybe we didn't account for originally? Uh, great questions. The advantages were that both sides had a certain freedom, okay? We didn't have to uh, agree on a big contract or it was, it was a free agreement almost, you know, where you, okay, on, on one side I felt, okay, if, if they don't want me anymore, they're, they're not going to invite me, right? They're saying, no, no, don't, don't come this time. And the other way around. I, thought, I think the setup was both sides could only win. Both sides could only win. And it developed in a way that I really liked. It really took everything from me, the concentration and understanding the, the delicacy of, this, of these uh, setups because each player would have his responsible assistant. So we would be on the court in a group of three, the player, the, the responsible coach, and myself. So I tried to help the coach help the player or do something with the player but include his coach. That, that, that was very important. So you don't exclude that guy creating a situation of, you know what, I came here now for four days from, uh, uh, from Europe and I'm, I'm going to show you how it's done now. So that, that, that would, not, would not happen, would, would not work, of course, right? So not stepping on anybody's toes, understanding the relation between the two, uh, and then building a relation with both of them to help the responsible coach helped the player. That was uh, that was a great a great challenge. Well, and it speaks to something you've said before, which is what you want to be consciously invisible and be in the background more. And that's really the benefit. I love that phrasing. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think it uh, it's it's connected with if you got if you've gotten over yourself, hmm. uh, if if you've reached a point 
in your profession why it's not important to you because you know that that you know what you're talking about then you i think that you need it less you know uh, and when you when you're not scared of um, i don't know making a player angry or 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 like when you're not scared of making making a mistake or something like that if you see a player work with a coach i think the goal should be if you watch from outside let's say it's a it's a it's an individual workout of what whatever kind the goal should not be that after the practice you say wow this coach is great you should say the player is great what a great player he did he did great stuff that should be the goal and that's my goal like to bring him somewhere where the workout is great because he, he's doing great things not because oh wow this 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 trainer he's got great moves so this this trainer knows how to shoot of course we have to we have to give the player the feeling of we know what we're talking about and we we can demonstrate stuff of course it's important but the practice or the workout it can never be about the coach it must be about the player it sounds simple but i see so many out there and i respect everybody i i, I watch almost everybody i can watch on instagram or wherever because because each each skills coach out there knows something or has something that is interesting or or you can copy or learn from him but I think the general idea of the importance of who's important in that constellation, it should always be the player. Absolutely. And love that uh, example that you just gave. And we, we mentioned pre-practice working with players, and then you mentioned being a part of practice. So can you give us some examples of when you do take over parts of practice? Uh, mostly it's the early or earlier part uh, in team practices. It was like that with with almost all had coaches that I've worked for with Coach Fleming for sure, Trinkieri for sure. He would always give me six minutes. He called it, he called it six and six. So I would have uh, one group, let it be the bigs first, and the others the others would be with the with the athletic coach for six minutes. Um, they would do some some physical activation, for example. And then we then we would switch it, or it could be team white, and then for six minutes, and then team red. So group two groups, very similar with coach Fleming where I would mostly take the guards or the perimeter players and the bigs would be with coach Boltman. Now with coach Emil it's it's similar. I can decide a little bit more. So usually he leaves it up to me what what to do or he says, well I want this and that and that. But how you do it I don't care. So I design that. What I do in addition for for the current team is whenever we shoot during practice I take over again. So we have we have short shooting windows of three to five minutes that we usually do twice per team practice. And then there's there's again tasks, which they could be divided again, or one group does uh, something very, very intense, uh, and the bigs are are doing stuff with with Coach Boltman again or, or with with our other assistant. Or I take all of them and they 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 pair up and they have to fulfill something. What I what I also do is when they do not have pre-practice, they have to fulfill some shooting task, a short shooting package that they already know most of the times, and they get it by by text message. And they can they can come in whenever they want, but before the team practice starts, they they must have done it. Coach, I can't wait to get you back to the basketball podcast, but I wanted to take a brief moment to tell you about ImmersionVideos.com. Have you checked out ImmersionVideos.com? 
watch Anato's practice and see how he has Alabama ranked in the top five nationally, or get access to our new release featuring nine all-access practices from Alex Rama, or other products from Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Dave Smart, Scott Morrison, Aaron Fern, Mark Cassio, Francisco Nanny, and more. Immersionvideos.com was created to provide value to coaches like you who are looking to stimulate their professional development by offering unique all-access tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. Go to immersionvideos.com and check it out today. I love it. And uh, I want to get into shooting with you, of course, because uh, one of the fascinating things I know you've talked about more in depth than I've ever heard anyone talk about is nail length. Uh, and when I, when I first saw it, I was like, okay, what is, what is he going to talk about here? And it literally is the length of their nails. So talk a little bit about that. <laughs> I think you referred to, to the story with Karis Levert. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's not that I come in and, and, and I, and I check guys fingernails every, every day. Really not. I but, didn't think so. <laughs> uh, but I think it is important. I, I, I truly believe in it. If the nails are extremely long, that then that last part of your fingertips are, is not going to be used. It's just a fact, right? If, the, if you can control the ball until the very end of your finger, there's going to be, I don't know, 5% more length that's, that's used from your release line or, I don't know, 2%. I've never measured it, but for sure it's going to be more. And <laughs> more, more is better. And so I, I do believe it, uh, it is important. I, I played professional basketball too. It was very important for me how my nails were and how the ball felt. I, I love it. It was such a great example of a micro detail that uh, does matter. And I agree with you in that sense, uh, especially having some daughters now to be able to get them to understand to keep their nails cut um, short. And we used to cut our nails. We used to always talk about that within a team because people would get scratched, of course, uh, if you had long nails. But th- this connects even better for a player. Other things that matter to you in terms of shooting that you could share with us. I mean, we already mentioned individual differences. And it's safe to say that everyone functions differently as a shooter. So can you talk about the other things that really matter to you in terms of shooting? I, again, I like the number three. And I, very generally spoken, look at three things. The first are the feet. I like to I like to look at the bottom. And I picked it up from, from Holger Geschwindner, who's, who's the, the, the famous uh, individual coach of, of, of Dirk Nowitzki. And he would talk about the feet a lot. I uh, thought about it a lot. Like we all, we all look at the fingers and the follow through and is it long or not? Or and, and what does the elbow do? But he was the first guy that I met who talked about the feet. I picked that up and I, 99% of the players that I work with, I start with the feet. I look at the feet. How does he stand? Right? How does he, when he catches the ball, what are the feet doing? Is he straight above his feet? Or is he already in a cramped up position where he's only on the forefoot because somebody told him, yeah, get ready quickly and, you know, triple threat or stuff like that. Uh, Again, nine of 10 times I start checking the feet and everything that builds up like the base of a house. If the foundation is a good base, then everything above will, will be relatively stable. And more stability is more consistency. And that's that's what we all want. Right. I like to use their shoe size. So if you have a 15, well, use the 15 at least for a while. And don't be only on, on, a, on a six or a seven all the time. And these four-foot dominant players, you see them everywhere. And if, of course, we, we, we leave uh, the ground through our forefoot and the toes. But if, if we move for, for four quarters uh, uh, on our toes, 
we catch it on the toes and 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 from that position we go up uh it's going to be very very hard i'm not saying wrong I'm not saying wrong because there'll be shots where we have to pop only from our forefoot it has to go very quick everything that goes backwards step backs they usually are more on our forefoot uh, otherwise we, we would fall back right uh, than than others but at some point i love a n- natural stance let's be at least for a moment naturally on our or above our feet and i i sometimes i call it just find you're trying to find your feet find your feet use your 15. it's a, it's a great example of the importance of feet and i'm just curious then if you were starting from a youth level is there one type of footwork that you feel is the best one to start with because we know as they evolve i mean differential footwork is positive for them but when they start with is there one footwork that you value no i hardly use right or wrong or this is the best and don't do this of it Probably never ever actually never ever because there's so many differences i have to know them of course or if if i see somebody struggle then i do come in and say try this or try that or maybe mm, let's add instead of jump stopping everything let's add a one two when you curl to add some balance of course i have a certain belief which is nine of ten times easier like i believe in easier or harder but not in right or wrong for sure not so these these youngsters first you you're still able to to throw a lot of seeds around them and 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 if you have patience uh, some will grow right some not but some will grow so you can you can try a lot and and they they might uh, develop their most functional techniques uh, with pj tucker we, we did that he, he would not want to stop right left and so he called it drag step so he would just moving left he would place his left foot and then just drag his right foot into the for him correct stance and, and it was all good and it so why why should i take it away from him or tell him that is wrong so that's that, that's that's foot foot balance or foot stability or foot balance that's that's usually part one for me second is for sure the the grip and the release what does what does the hand do what does the release line do how is the guy built right does he have a huge chest chest like patrick miller our point guard or retino vasohan from from asbel these guys with a pectoralis like this they they can't bring their elbow in and i have to understand that and if I tell him, well, elbow in because we think it's correct, then I am wrong because he just can't. There's no room. If they have a bicep like that and a, and a chest muscle like this, they will never be able to be straight at, look straight at the basket and bring the elbow in. Impossible. So I have to understand that he will have to stand like this, right? Be a little, be a little turned in order to have a straight release line. I, I do believe in that, and I do believe a lot in how is the hand on the ball because it's the last part of our body that touches the ball before the ball flies out then we are again uh, back to the fingertips right so how do i hold it is my hand small and and soft or is it uh, is it dominant does it touch a lot of the ball or only half of it do i use my fingers do i use my my hand to a high potential or only half of it I like to call it upper unit. So the arm, the arm and the hand, what do they do? So that's 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 important to me. That'll be this, the second part. And the third is the overall timing. Right? How do the most delicate one, right? The most uh, 
the hardest one. How do the body parts of my player play together? How is the timing? Does he does he start with the ball? Does he get get under uh, get get under the ball before he starts extending? How does he extend everything at once? You know these guys who they put so much energy in and and they move everything at once, right? They never extend sequentially like biomechanics teaches, which is which is an an, an optimal uh, acceleration. So you you have these guys who they work so hard and the ball never flies out because they the timing is 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 not optimal. Again, I'm not saying wrong. It's not optimal. And then you have these effortless guys, and 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 we we tend to say, "Oh, what a natural shooter!" Yeah, but they are perfect. They are perfect in the timing of extending and using their body parts, their levers, right? Like Lillard, like Curry, of course, right? You see them, you see them extend sequentially. The legs, the trunk, the elbow, the hand, every everything goes quickly, but it's not at the same time. And then then I come back to biomechanics, which which is just the truth, right? They they count for everyone. Everybody, every every body is different. Uh, one is short and strong. The other is long and maybe a little weaker. But but the biomechanics count for everybody. I think it's in, in, incredible examples of accounting for individual differences and not predetermining what someone needs to learn based on what you've read or what you've learned through the years. We have to look at each individual separately, don't we, in terms of evaluating what can be optimal for them? For sure, for sure. And it's a it's a constant fight for me that I love to fight. After my first year with the Nets, uh, Kenny Atkinson asked me to do a, a, an analysis, deep dive, deep dive about shooting. So analyze shooting, bring in science, uh, how should we analyze it? How should we, we teach it? Uh, and it was great because that was hard for me to get organized. Right? And I prepared a presentation that brought scientific evidence. Still, when we talked about it and when I, when I presented it and then we talked about it, I felt the, the, the huge desire of putting things into boxes. Like, I think every good shooter jumps forward or Every good shooter has a rotation. I think many good shooters jump a little forward, especially when the distance is very long, but not on every shot. Or every good shooter should have a one motion shot. Well, what about all these hang shooters who have who have to fade away and 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 and, and get a shot off in two point area? Do you see them less and less, but they're still there. I think it's a waste of time to categorize all the time and label he's this, he's that. Because it changes all the time. But again, this coming back to, to, to trying to analyze everything and categorize, I don't think it's possible. And I don't think it makes much sense either. I couldn't agree more. I, I just think it's it's such a pointless waste of time. And I understand like as, as sport federations and different things, they need to create these kind of these boxes, as, as to use your words, kind of to give people guidelines. But learning is so nonlinear that there's no way we could ever box it in that way. And uh, I, I absolutely couldn't agree more. Uh, listen, another thing I really enjoyed learning um, and, and hearing your insights, and I want to dive deeper on, is this concept of this intersection between psychology and player development or coaching, and particularly your focus on emotional regulation. Can you talk to us about the importance of this and then some of the things that you've learned to be able to apply? I can come with an example from last Saturday. We we had a game on the road with the Bamberg team, uh, a very important one again against a good 
a good opponent who who's, who who is in a very good phase now. And we came from game the the week or the Monday before, where we shoot, where we shot the ball very bad. And I think mostly not only for me but but for many players the the shooting is is a mentally very challenging topic right so we had shot the ball well on monday we came back to this road game on saturday in the first quarter we play well we create a lot of open threes and we made i think one of 10 or one of 11. so with the shooting being my responsibility and my demand of myself to lead them in this it was it was a, a again a, a delicate situation because inside i was angry and 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 uh, uh frustrated because nobody could make a shot and but still it was only the first quarter so i had to hold myself back my own emotions in order to control their emotions because what if they see me the guy who talks to them about shooting every day what if they see me lose it and get angry and kick the I don't know kick kick a chair or something. They have to see me as their leader in this in this topic, believing in them, and also that there's the trust again and the patience in this situation. I tried to choose my words in the in the first uh, break. Uh, well, just calming guys down and saying things very simple things, but they need to hear it. Uh, I I do believe a lot in. The right choice of words, things like "let it fly, guys," "great misses," "great misses," instead of "yeah, keep shooting." Um, we, we're not gonna miss forever. Oh, there's the word "miss" again, right? So, I, I, I usually in these situations I choose a lot of makes ahead of us. There's there's a lot of makes coming up, stuff like that. They have to hear makes and not misses. I I, I believe in that a lot, and it worked well. Not only because of that, but also because of that. They have to see me calm. They have to see me believing. They have to see uh, patience. They have to hear it, too. That's such a brilliant example, by the way. Great misses. Because I say it to kids all the time. Great effort making a mistake. And they, they to acknowledge the fact that mistakes are necessary for learning and they're not actually this bad thing. And misses are realities, aren't they? So you're normalizing it. When I worked with, with Maxi Kleber, he would he would be so focused on the stuff he does not do well. There's many others who, who talk and think about the mistakes and coming back to shooting. We've had another player last year he would, who, who, would, who would come out, sub down and say, I can't make a shot. I cannot make a shot. And I looked at the stats and he was, he was zero for one, zero for one. I'm like, look, you, 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 you missed one. So what sample size is that? You, you, <laughs> It's a, you know, zero for one or one for one is almost luck, you know? So under, uh, making them understand, look, we play basketball and nine of 10 basketball players miss more often than they make it. That's just the, that's just the game we play and we will not be able to change it. You won't. So you can be angry at yourself or try to kill yourself uh, with it every day, but it, it's not going to change. We miss it more than we make it. Usually that opens their eyes a little bit. Oh, yes, true. So maybe, maybe I'm not that bad. And turning the page over and talk about the makes. Let's talk about makes and not about the misses all the time. It's like before a game. You can say, hey, guys, you have to be alert. This 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 team is, is really dangerous. Or we can say, hey, let's not underestimate them. They, uh, they're not that bad. 
Okay, so what sticks? The same like, hey, let's let's not be let's not be lazy on defense. Oh, so you hear lazy, you hear underestimate, you hear this and that. Same with shooting. Same with individual situations. I can come in and say this is wrong, that is wrong. We have to work on the elbow. It's not it, it's not straight. Or I can come from the other side and say, hey, you you're making a lot of shots. Your your feel for the ball is great. What if we improve the timing of your shot a little bit? You could make it easier. It's not wrong, but I can help you with getting it off easier. That's totally different. Totally different. And these these small moments of a right or wrong choice of words, they can change everything. They can change everything. Well, I love that. If if nothing if you don't take away anything from this podcast other than the fact that again, don't focus on what's wrong focus on it's not optimal and we can improve it or what can be more optimal in terms of these things. So uh, that's great. And another thing it, it just kind of connected with me is that when I'm working with shooters, one of the hardest things to self-discipline yourself as a coach is to not just give them feedback on when they miss, right? Like it's, oh, you, you know, you should have lifted the ball more or hold your fault through or something like that. It's easy to give feedback on a miss, but it's also to be able to balance that feedback on misses and makes but also to gradually reduce the amount of feedback and let them experience it for themselves. I think we can help ourselves with, okay, what are we working on in this moment? Is it, is it a certain, uh, is it the foot balance or is it the timing of the shot or is it the grip? So let's look at that only and not, let's talk about makes later and we can help them a lot with that. We can help them a lot. Like, I, I don't care. I usually say in this situation, I don't care if, if you miss everything now, let's just do this. Let's just talk about the the grip if I want to talk about the grip. Okay, spread the fingers a little bit more so you can you can have a, a long release line and guide that ball along. Uh, if you make it or not, I, I don't even comment it. The term of a good miss comes from Brian Roberts, who was a very very important player here for for Bamberg in the in the early two tens, and he he made it to the NBA from here, and 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 he would say, oh, that's a good miss, and we started to like it. And I and and I and I use it more and more uh, the the good misses because sometimes we do everything right on a shot and the ball still still doesn't go in. <laughs> so I have I have the confidence to say that to to, to players. I love that Zico Coronel, who was on the podcast a long time ago, a New Zealand coach, coach in Japan now, used to call it a coach clap. That as soon as they're shooting the ball, you're already clapping regardless of outcome. Because it was the right shot, the right decision, and obviously a good shot for our team. Um, <clears throat> some level of emotion is needed, so they can't be robots. So talk to us. How do we help players, especially younger players, learn to balance their emotions? I I listened to a podcast of a, of a mental performance coach, and I think he's in baseball. And he said, play or use your emotions, but don't play emotionally. I think that's a big difference, right? So the excitement, the nervousness in before the game or or in a game is just a is just a sign of our bodies getting ready for what we do. Emotionally, would be the anger against ourselves after after a miss or stuff like that. So that's two parts, and at least for my head, that that helps. Everything else is very individual. Um, we have a we have a very young player here who who had a, a very difficult start to the season, 
we were looking for somebody else and then we contract and then we gave him another short contract and he's still with us he's a five man who played in a lower league last year and we use him more and more as a as a pick and pop five because he shoots it very well and he did he's doing a more like a better and better job every every week by by keeping keeping shooting and and he, he was only two for ten this last game that i just talked about a couple of minutes ago and what i loved loved about it was that he kept shooting what everybody says keep shooting keep shooting but it is hard when you're out there and you your team gives you the ball and you miss and then you miss again and then you miss again and we are all tempted to next time i'm gonna freaking drop there's you know there's so much space and he did a great job being mentally strong or emotionally calm whatever it is um to 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 keep shooting and that's what we wanted and, and he made one very important three uh, late so so great job he, he surprised us with with his with his emotional mental strength but again that is very individual and in for these cases i also like to use the consultation of experts uh, i also cooperate with with uh, with rana Maestrian from from cortex performance who's a mental performance coach it's good to have somebody in addition who, who can help with that who can maybe even start working with a player if there's the the time capacity the the potential to do that coach i mean y- your experiences are tremendous uh lifelong learner uh had an opportunity to work with elite players from all over the world so just curious some of the experiences and some of the kind of some of the learning that you could help us understand how to be better coaches from your experiences i think it comes back to and if it's let's say if it's an an nba player who who wants me to come over and work with him the first is identifying the job how in what situation is he in and how can i help him what does he need now uh, and that needs preparation. I had to watch film. I need to talk to him, to his agent, to his family, maybe even to his former coaches. Get as as much in, uh, as much information uh, as I can to to tailor a, a custom workout for him. To be able to choose the right words. To be able to choose the right exercises. Be flexible to adjust. But identifying that to be done uh, in that in 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 those three or four days that I that I have them or even less that can help him uh, and and that's usually the key connect well keep him as the driver of the car he's the most important guy I just have the map okay and I might suggest a, a certain a certain way uh, but he's driving I'm, I'm I'm just there for him he's the main person and 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 that's that's what always helped me. That's that works for me. Tremendous stuff. Thank you so much for uh, sharing the game with us. So many lessons and so many insights. So super appreciate you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about basketballmersion.com. Why do so many coaches coach like it was 20 years ago? Technology, research, innovation have all expanded our understanding of teaching, coaching, and learning. Change can be hard to accept. But with an open mind and willingness to learn, it is possible. This is what Basketball Immersion has done for so many coaches. Coaches at all levels of basketball from around the world have stimulated their coaching development using the Basketball Immersion membership community. Embrace the change that will impact your players and team beyond anything you can imagine. 
join our basketball immersion community at basketballimmersion.com. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the basketball podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.